0: in Matthew chapter 4 today, so if you'd like to look there, I'm going to read for us verses 17 through 22, but I'll be referring to other parts of that chapter and the one before it as well. Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 22, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. And once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. <clears throat> gospel of matthew can be divided into three principal sections the first which introduces jesus to matthew's audience begins with chapter one verse one and ends with chapter four verse 16. with the words that we just read from that time on chapter four verse 17 introduces the second and the largest of the three sections of matthew which relates what jesus taught and how he cared for people in need That section runs to chapter 16 and verse 21, where once again we read the words from that time on. And that line introduces the final section of Matthew, which narrates the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Now, after all that we've been seeing about God's kingdom in the Old Testament and all the promises of a king and then seeing how Jesus' birth in Bethlehem fulfilled those promises that God would send a king, our ears should be ringing when we hear the announcement of verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom for which Israel had been waiting for a millennium is near. Jesus clearly felt that the time had come to make this announcement. He's about 30 years old at this time, and I think there are four things that that may have led him to that conclusion. The first being the commission that he received from his heavenly father at his baptism, which we read about back in chapter three in verse 17. It was a momentous event when God's spirit descended upon him like a dove signaling the advent of a new era in God's kingdom, just as the dove that descended to Noah's ark had done long before. Secondly, Jesus had recently emerged successful from the devil's tests. We read about that in the beginning of chapter 4. So when you go home today, read the first part of chapter 4 as well. These tests were not merely an attempt to get Jesus to do something bad but rather to get him to turn away from his father. This had the first Adam and had Israel's kings. Instead of believing God's word and directing their lives by it, they disbelieved and ignored God's word. Adam, Eve, all of Israel's kings that we've looked at, <coughs> excuse me. instead of finding their security and fulfillment in God's will, they tried to find it on their own terms. The devil had used this kind of test forever with uninterrupted success. But it didn't work with Jesus. He did not turn from God. He looked to God's word to guide him. Read about those tests at the beginning of chapter 4. And to God's provision for his security and fulfillment. And then thirdly, John the Baptist, the forerunner, had by this time completed his ministry. Verse 12 tells us that John had been put in prison. His work of preparing the way of the Lord had come to a close. And then the fourth thing, Jesus had moved to a new home base. When he went to the province of Judea to be baptized by John, he left his hometown in Nazareth in Galilee. After John was in prison, Jesus went back to Galilee, but he didn't return to Nazareth. Instead, he settled in Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Little Capernaum became the center of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, at this time, there was a sense of competition between the northern province of Galilee and the southern province of Judea, and even some ill will between them. The Judeans thought themselves... Superior to the Galileans, and for a number of reasons. For one, Galilee was home to more Gentiles than it was to Jews. And even some of the Galilean Jews came from ethnic Gentile families that had been forced to convert to Judaism in the war of 103 BC. The Judeans also felt superior because Jerusalem, the center of worldwide Judaism, was in their province. And if Jerusalem was the center of Judaism, the temple, which was the center of Jerusalem, was the heart of the world. You can sense the feeling of superiority that the Jews of Judea had and the response they made to Nicodemus when he cautiously spoke in defense of Jesus. They looked at him and said, are you from Galilee too? And then said, look into it. You'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. The Judeans looked down their nose at their northern neighbors. And of course, Galilee returned the favor. There was a saying popular in the north at that time Judea is on the way to nowhere, Galilee is on the way to everywhere. Jesus went to Galilee and he settled in Capernaum, perhaps with the intention of fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea. Along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That quote comes from a passage that ought to be very familiar to us by now, Isaiah chapter 9. You might remember how Isaiah goes right on to promise the coming of a king from David's line. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. By the way, when you read a quote, from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Be aware that the writer has in mind that quote, but very likely the passage around it. So go back to that passage and see what it says on either side of the quote and get context for it. Now, I find it interesting and somewhat unexpected that Jesus chose Capernaum as his base. Even his brothers told him to go to Jerusalem You ought to leave here, they said to him while he was living in Capernaum. You ought to leave here and go to Judea. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. No one who wants to be anybody stays here. Since you're doing these things, go show yourself to the world. And for them, the world was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city of the great king, the home of the temple. Jerusalem was large and famous. Jerusalem was the big time. And yet Jesus chose to live in Capernaum. A village that some historians say was approximately the size of Quincy, Michigan. That's not what most aspiring leaders would choose to do. It's not the way the world works. But that should prepare us for a truth we should see over and over in the scriptures and that we must grasp if we're ever to be at home in the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, this is very important does not operate on the same principles as the kingdom of the world. If we assume that it does, we're going to find living in the kingdom to be a constant struggle. And that brings us back to verse 17, where Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The first word Jesus spoke to the public, as recorded in the Gospels, is the word repent. Unfortunately, most people think of repentance as a kind of punishment, something we want to avoid at all costs. It's like doing penance. We don't want to do that. We think of repentance as something very negative, but that's not the case. Repentance is a blessed thing. It's a gift. Listen to what St. Peter told his hearers in the early days of the church. God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance to Israel After the first Gentiles believed in Jesus, the Jews exclaimed in wonder, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance? They could hardly believe that God had given this beautiful gift to Gentiles. Paul tells the Romans that it's God's kindness that leads them to repentance and urges Timothy not to give up on certain people who are being rebellious, but to continue to hope that God would give them repentance. I've heard repentance described as the act of turning around. I've seen it described, a man walking down an aisle saying, I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell, and then turning around and saying, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. There's something to that. Repentance inevitably leads to a change of behavior, but a change of behavior is a consequence of repentance, it's not repentance itself. For example, you can stop drinking without repenting. You can change patterns of gluttony or of lust or of the way you speak without repenting. Repentance is not principally a change of action but of mind. That's literally what the two parts of the compound word in Greek mean. Change of mind. A person who experiences repentance actually changes his mind about his destructive behaviors. And other things. But he looks at his behavior and sees how worthless they are. Even if there were no consequences, no negative consequences, he wouldn't want to engage in them. He no longer sees them as something good. They look like slop to him. That's Dallas Willard's word. Repentance is a gift of seeing something, that something is your life, of seeing your life in a radically new way. You ever looked at one of those magic eye pictures? At first, it looks like just a lot of colors and spots. And for some people, that's all it ever looks like. But if they continue to look, many people will start to see a picture inside the picture, a three-dimensional view of something they couldn't have imagined was there. Their eyes are opened, as it were. In repentance, that kind of thing happens to the picture of our lives. We see ourselves as we've never seen ourselves before in the fresh light of the kingdom of God and catch a glimpse of what we can yet be. When Jesus says repent for the kingdom of God is near, he's telling people to rethink their lives, to change their minds about their lives in the light of the presence and availability of the kingdom, the rule of God. If the kingdom of God is really here, then it changes in order. If God's kingdom is here, we really can guide our lives by his word and trust him to provide for our fulfillment. If God's kingdom is here, we never have to do evil in order to thrive. We never have to violate our consciences in order to be okay. The presence of God's kingdom changes everything. What Jesus said to them, he says to us. In the light of what's really going on here, rethink your life. There's another way to live, a better way than the way you've been living. In the light of the good news of God's kingdom, rethink your priorities, rethink your relationships, rethink how you use your money, rethink your life. That's the message of verse 17. So let me give you an illustration. I chose this as a sop for the Nerd Church crew, okay? Imagine that the White House, uh, when you get home, the TV's covered with an announcement that the White House is uh, making a a speech tonight, that President Obama's gonna make a joint statement with the leaders of Russia and England and China and India and France and Germany at 9 o'clock tonight. It's being called the most important announcement in the history of the world. Everyone in the country, would be talking about, everyone in the world would be watching at 9 o'clock. World leaders then announced that they have been contacted, now you'll know why this is for Nerd Church, by a league of extraterrestrial planets, inviting Earth to join them as part of the larger galactic community. They promised to furnish Earth, we learn with technology that will provide an endless supply of energy. Modes of transportation will be revolutionized. No one on Earth will ever go hungry again. Money will become obsolete. All kinds of things are going to change. If you believed what the president and those other leaders said, you would rethink your life. Your investment portfolio, which you spent 30 years putting together, wouldn't mean squat. The car that you spent all that money on, it'll be obsolete in months or years, in a year maybe. Your job will even have a job tomorrow. You don't know. Your ongoing argument with your brother... What does that matter now? You would have to rethink everything. Jesus' announcement of the nearness of the kingdom of God was a similar kind of thing. In the light of the fact that God's kingdom has come near, what should I do? I and mean, should I give up my job? Should I stop worrying about money? Does what my brother did to me over the inheritance matter? In the light of the kingdom of God? All these things need to be rethought in the light of Jesus' announcement that God's kingdom is near. Of course, if you don't know what God's kingdom is, or what God is like, it would be very hard to rethink your life. That is, to repent. You wouldn't have enough data to go on. And that's exactly where many people find themselves. They don't know how to think about God's kingdom, or what it means for their lives. Even though... That is exactly what Jesus taught us. Now, there's a question that simply must be asked. Some of you are probably thinking it already. In what sense is God's kingdom near? Or in what sense has it, and I'm translating literally now, has it drawn near? Is God's kingdom here, or is it still coming To say it's near isn't the same thing as saying it's here, is it? We need to answer that question. I don't want to risk my life and my reputation on God's rule if God isn't ruling yet. So is it now or is it later? The answer to that question is, it's both. The kingdom arrived with the king, with Jesus. Yet for the time being, earth is occupied by hostile forces led by the one Paul calls the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The kingdom arrived with Jesus and people can live for and under the authority of the king right now. But they do so rather like the free French lived for and under the authority of free France even while Nazis occupied their land. But the Nazis eventually we're defeated and driven out. And the same thing will happen to every power that resists the kingdom of God. Now, I said a few minutes ago that the kingdom of God operates by different principles than the kingdom of the world. If you're going to live in occupied land under the kingdom of God, you're going to live by different principles. And it, unless we learn those principles, we'll never be at home in the kingdom of God. That the kingdom functions differently was clear from the very beginning. And we see at least an example of this in Matthew's description of the men that Jesus recruited to serve. The choice of these men points to an obvious difference between Jesus and the culture around him. Jewish teachers did not call their disciples. According to Rabbi Gamaliel, we read about him in the scriptures, it was the student who should apply to the teacher, not the other way around. But Jesus didn't wait for students to come to him. He took the initiative and chose his students I see another difference here. At that time, a student would apply to a teacher, a rabbi, rather like a high school senior now applies to the college of his choice. He would apply to a teacher with the understanding that after dedicating years of his life to learning, he would be qualified for a job as a rabbi. In other words, the young man who applied to a rabbi was setting out on a career track. Jesus' approach was altogether different. He wasn't looking for people who wanted to embark on a career in religion, but for people who wanted to learn how to live in the kingdom of God. He didn't call people to a career, but to personal loyalty to himself and his ways. And the people he called were not the kinds of students most rabbis were looking for. They were not unusually studious by nature, That's a kind way of putting it, the way W.D. Davis puts it. They were men of action, men who knew how to work hard, to face danger, to follow orders. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And by the way, it's just interesting that there's three different words for nets in the New Testament. You know, I remember uh, back in college days when we were taking a class on language, we learned that the Eskimos have something like 12 different words for snow. Well, these fishermen had different words for nets. And this one is the word used for a hand net that was being thrown out into the water and brought back. So they're casting their nets in the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. The word come actually there is not even a verb. It sounds like it's a verbal command, but it's really an adverb. It's like, here, here, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. That encounter gives us a chance to see how the call to repentance works itself out in a person's life. Now, remember, Jesus has just urged people to rethink their lives in the light of the presence and availability of the kingdom. Then Jesus invited Peter and Andrew to follow him. Now, rethinking their lives was an intensely practical exercise for them. It meant rethinking their careers, rethinking their financial security. Fishermen were hardly rich, but they had a more secure living than most people. Yet in the light of the presence of the kingdom... And the authority of the king, they decided to leave their safe jobs, and they embarked on an uncertain future. Rethinking their lives led them to leave their jobs. Now, for other people, rethinking their lives might have led to a different conclusion. For example, Jesus' beloved disciple, Lazarus, lived in the light of the kingdom, but he never left his hometown of Bethany. And yet Peter and Andrew, verse 20, at once left their nets and followed him. James and John Barzebedee also heard Jesus' announcement about the kingdom. In the light of what he said, they had been rethinking their lives as well. When Jesus called them, they too left their jobs and they followed. But they had to do more than rethink their jobs. They had to rethink their relationships. That was a reality Jesus made perfectly clear on any number of occasions. He didn't bury it in the fine print. The nearness of the kingdom and the call of the king led James and John to leave the security of their family business and what I'm sure was far more difficult, to leave their dad. Again, not everyone rethinking their lives in the light of the kingdom would come to that conclusion, but they did. Now, I think it's important that the first people Jesus called were fishermen. They weren't looking for a career in religious service. Jesus didn't promise them a more prestigious career than being a fisherman rather he promised to make them fishers of men and here's the point jesus takes people where they are with their set of gifts and skills and puts them to work in his kingdom for example if you're a secretary he can use your gifts and skills and personality for the kingdom he can make you a typist for the kingdom of god If you're a construction worker or a tailor or a musician or a teacher or a farmer, it doesn't matter. God has a place for you in his kingdom work. He doesn't turn everybody into preachers and teachers. He turns them into themselves. The selves they were always meant to be but will never be outside his kingdom. All right, let's put this together. We live in occupied earth, but the King has come to us. He's promised us all the resources we need to live under His rule. We never have to do evil to bring good. We don't have to violate our consciences to survive. We don't have to hate or fear or condemn. We don't have to hoard. We can live His way until the day he returns to set up his kingdom. The day he comes, St. Paul says, to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who've believed. Now, the time to choose to live for his kingdom is now. Not then, but now. C.S. Lewis, editing his wartime talks into the book Mere Christianity, originally gave these talks during the war from London. But in editing them, he he put this especially poignantly. I don't suppose that you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited till the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced he was on our side. God is going to invade, all right. But what's the good of saying you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it becomes impossible to stand up, that will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. <clears throat> Now's the time. In the light of the fact that the King has come and we can count on him and is returning and we can prepare for him, we would be wise to rethink our lives, to come to grips with St. Peter's profound question, what kind of people ought you then to be? Since Jesus promised us the resources of God's kingdom, we can rethink what we do with our money. Does our attitude toward money reflect the belief that it's ours, that we've earned it, and we can do with it whatever we want? Or does it express the belief that what we have comes from God? Is our money motivated, our use of money motivated by fear or by the desire to serve? Let's rethink our relationships. In the light of our acceptance in the kingdom of God, how should we relate to people who don't accept us? In the light of the forgiveness that God extends to those who enter his kingdom, how should we relate to people who sin against us? In the light of the culture of grace in God's kingdom, should we go on condemning and hating the people who've hurt us? In the light of God's concern for the poor, should we do what should we do for them, for those in need? Most of the problems we face in living the Christian life arise because we compartmentalize truth into religious truth and real-life truth. And we hold the two in isolation from each other. Oh yeah, we believe Jesus is Lord. That's the truth for Sunday mornings, for Bible studies, for prayer meetings. We also believe that when I'm not at work, my time's my own. That's the truth for weekends. We believe the Bible is true, but we believe that the newscast, or at least the weather forecast, is more relevant. We believe that we should serve God. But when push comes to serve, we also believe there are times when a person has to put himself first. It takes grace and courage to face our real beliefs and think them through in the light of God's kingdom. And when we do so, it's important to remember that Jesus' is teaching, the things that he says about money, about relationships, about identity, about what constitutes a good life, only makes sense when we're living inside the presence and the power of the kingdom of God. Outside the kingdom won't make sense. And we will always find excuses, even theological ones, for not doing what Jesus says. Just like the French found excuses for not joining the resistance. So let me offer you one practical step for applying the truths that we've seen here. Take one issue in your life, just one, start with one, where you sometimes feel what psychologists call cognitive dissonance and the rest of us call not being easy in my mind. I'm not easy in my mind about that. Take that one thing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something else. Examine that issue in the light of the presence and the resources of God's kingdom. Go ahead and explore what Jesus says on the subject. Consider what steps you might want to take to align your life with Jesus' teaching. For some of you, that issue of cognitive dissonance, that thing you're, not, you're uneasy about, has already come to mind. What is it? Does it involve a relationship, maybe with a family member, a co-worker? Does it involve what you do with your money or how you spend your time? Right here, right now, resolve to rethink that issue. Are you living in a way that's consistent with what Jesus teaches about the presence and the power of the kingdom of God? Will you dare to trust God to bring your life into alignment with Jesus' teaching on the subject? That's really where the rubber meets the road. If you're not willing to do that, admit it. That in itself will be a huge step forward. God, my neighbor and I, there's this thing and it's been there for years and I know what you say about forgiving but I'm just not going to do it. And I know that's not what you want but that's what I, where I'm at and that's what I'm going to do. At least admit it to yourself. Don't make excuses. Don't defend yourself. If you'll just admit it, that will be a huge step forward. But if you say, no, I want... To bring my life into alignment with what Jesus says in the kingdom of God. Then share that intention with God and with at least one other person. See, God intended us to do kingdom life together. None of us is strong enough to do it on our own. Do it together relying on him but helping each other. And if you'll do that, you can get ready to experience the reality of the power and goodness of God in your life. Because the kingdom of God has drawn near. Let's pray. God, I pray for us. I know that we can even hear your voice and walk out and distract ourselves with other things. I pray you won't let us do that. Help us to find at least one thing examined in the light of the kingdom and give us the grace to align our lives with what you say. Not as some kind of penance, Lord, but as the beginning of great blessing. I ask for this in Jesus' name.